Continuing uh, as Chris takes breaks uh, throughout Luke in a, a short sermon series on first few chapters of the Psalms. So uh, with me today, we're going to go through Psalms 4. Uh, and as you heard, the title of our uh, sermon for today is The God Who Brings Peace. Um, and so we're going to talk a bit about peace. First, we're going to uh, go through the scripture, break it down a bit as we go through, and then get to the idea of what is peace, how do we get it, what do we need to know about it, and what do we need to know about how we get it, uh, and hopefully uh, encounter God in, in a way that brings uh, further beauty for, to himself that allows us to trust him with our peace. So if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn, turn to Psalms uh, 4. If you open up your Bible towards the middle, you'll probably find Psalms or Proverbs in that area. If you uh, are in Proverbs, go to your left. If you're in Psalms, go to chapter 4. If you're in neither of those, Keep flipping, you'll find it in the middle there somewhere, and you can go from there. All right, I will read uh, Psalms 4. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long... Will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in our hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light in your face, lift up your light, your, sorry, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have in their grain and wine abound. In the peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So we see uh, uh, David, uh, he starts his prayer in a f f uh, familiar fashion. He starts it with uh, directing his eyes to God. Uh, Answer me when I call, O God, of uh, my righteousness. And so uh, not only is he directing his eyes to God, he's directing his eyes to God as the source of his righteousness. And he continues, uh, you have given me relief when I was distressed. And so we see... These two realizations that David starts out his prayer with, the uh, first being, again, that God is his source of righteousness, that he himself is not his source of righteousness. It is not he who makes, makes himself right. It is God who makes himself right. And then the second is, I have seen all these good things you have done previous to my existence through your word and in my existence, the, things, the good things you have done for me uh, as I have lived and walked in you, your glory and your place. And so... His present prayer, he draws strength from the past, but he also draws strength from the realization that his righteousness is found in God and not his own. And by doing so, he's making an appeal to God's character. It is God who is the upholder of justice and to God's covenant. It is uh, when he speaks of the my there, he's directing his eyes and our eyes not to himself, but to the covenant that God has made with him by which he is the protector of David. His righteousness has been made secure, and therefore his covenant with God is secure. 
In verse 2, uh, we see what is the source of the distress, what has led David to pray. Um, o men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And so we see this false attack. Uh, it's a false attack on David's character. It's born out of falsehoods that they've already allowed themselves to hear and trust. And so they have not just decided on a whim that they need to shame David. They have given themselves over to something false, which we'll see further uh, in the scripture what is uh, that false uh, truth that they're holding on to, which has allowed them to be angry at David, which has brought them to this point of anger that leads them to shame uh, David. We see that the enemies uh, in verse 3, they uh, should recognize that uh, the Lord has chosen David to be his friend. Um, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. So David is not saying here, again, because he said in our first verse that God is his righteousness, that he is godly and therefore God is holding on to him. He's saying God has made me right. God has made me godly and he's holding on to me. Recognize what God has done in my life. Recognize that I am his and he says that, and uh, he shows us that God's uh, choice of a man, not merely for office or honor, but for fellowship, is the ultimate answer to the most wounding of aspirations and discouragements. And so his, his source of peace, his source of rest amongst the shame that is being cast upon him falsely by these people is the fact, not just that he's been put in certain positions, not just that he's had certain successes, but that in God's character, he's been made right. And in God's character, he is secure. And so in my fellowship with God, I have peace amongst these people seeking to shame me. Verse 4 says, uh, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So before we get into that, I'm going to read you three scriptures. They're short, so you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read them to you to give context to what I believe uh, David is, is praying here. Um, first is Luke 9, uh, 54, if you want to write down Luke 9, 54. Uh, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to uh, tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned to them and rebuked them. So Jesus and, and disciples had gone into a Samaritan city and uh, they had preached for salvation and the Samaritans uh, said that his eyes look to Jerusalem and therefore they will not accept him as God. He will not accept his salvation. And, and James and, and John's response was, do we want to destroy them right now? We will, we're here to be your acts, to be uh, your disciples of wrath right now. And Jesus turns to them and rebukes them. Then in James 1.19, we're told, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In Ephesians 4, to, uh, 4.26 we are told, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. More of this when we discover the true source. Uh, we'll dis uh, sorry. 
Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So I think what's being said here is um, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but most of the time that's not what we have. And so when we feel angry, first thing we should do is we should slow down. Before we act, before we say something, before we do anything, take a step back, walk away if you need to, and contemplate what is going on in your heart. What is making you angry? Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So if you find yourself responding to anger immediately, you're sinning. Whether your anger is justified or not, you're sinning. The command is clear. Don't act immediately. Ponder in your own hearts. Be silent for a moment. We're going to talk more about this idea of anger and what has made them angry as we discover the uh, source of their true anger uh, as we get to it in the passage. But uh, for right now, the idea is there was an anger that led them to shame David. And David is trying to say, look, even if you think your anger is justified, what God tells us is, we act too soon. We don't ponder in our hearts what's going on. So he goes on and he says, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Because David also is arguing that your source of anger is wrong. What has led you to be angry is wrong. Not only have you acted out of anger in a way that is sinful, your source of what led you to be angry is wrong. And so you need to ponder in your hearts. You need to give sacrifices, right sacrifices, and put your trust in the Lord. And so he said, how long, uh, in verse uh, earlier, he says, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies, right? So David is being very clear that they, are, they have trusted in something that has led them astray, that has caused them to be angry, and that has caused them to act in anger in ways they shouldn't. So David's making an appeal. He's making a call to repentance, but not just through sacrifices, but right sacrifices, not what they perceive as their good lives, as them following a covenant that they, as they perceive it and they haven't understood fully. Put your trust in God, David says. Make right sacrifices. First Samuel fifteen twenty two, and Samuel said, "Has the Lord as great has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams." So there's many people in Israel who thought they were really well off who thought they were in a good place in relation to God, who thought they were morally good people because they were participating in this cultural system of sacrifice that they established as God was trying to establish a spiritual, a religious sacrificial system with them, a covenant, as we call it in the Old Testament and the New Covenant that is established with Christ in in the New uh, Testament. We have... uh, 
this group of people that have uh, taken what God has commanded them and made even more laws to make it um, really narrow in their idea of what they need to do to be good people. Um, and we have a people that have uh, used the um, law to shame other people or attempt to shame other people or to gain from themselves in different ways uh, to improve their stat- place of status in their culture and their community uh, through this system instead of realizing what God is designing them uh, or what God designed for them to be a system for them to come in penance, to come in humility to himself, they have used it to become a, a system for their own self-righteousness, to improve their own stature amongst others, to show how good they are. And David is encouraging them to take a step back. Think about what a right sacrifice is, not what you're doing. Think about what it means to obey God, not to uh, seek to establish your own self-righteousness. Then in verse 6, David says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So the many, uh, we have seen this, uh, there are many who say uh, this uh, statement before from David. If you were here a few weeks back, uh, I preached from Psalm 3. And in in verse 2, it reads, Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. And so this is the same many who's speaking in that first line of verse uh, 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? So these people have rejected God. It's clear David believes they've rejected God. And ultimately what happens when you reject God? You're lacking in good. And so you're going to be constantly asking yourself, who will show us some good? You'll also expect somebody to allow you to to show you, to, to help you achieve, to help you to grasp on to something good. And for this, uh, this group of uh, people in Israel, David was their anointed king at one point, and he was their expected leader of them into good. And in fact, they had some times of great achievement, of peace, and uh, of community building that they had lacked before that. And then David sinned in, in a multitude of ways. And uh, David's family was uh, brought into chaos. The community, the uh, culture, the group of Israel was brought into a bunch of chaos. And so they are crying out again, who can lead us to something good? Because David, you have failed us. And David, uh, his... Uh, Prayer is, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David prays that God would move amongst the people who are shaming him, who are uh, not accepting him as a Christ or as a Christian, as a follower of the God of Israel. He prays for them, that God would enter into their hearts in such a way that the repentance he called them to could be possible and could be uh, rewarded in, uh, uh, through the covenant to which God has uh, blessed him with. Verse 7, uh, David continues, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And so here we see David's um, understanding of their sin. What is their sin? We have these two 
outlooks that are compared in verse 7. It's a classic contrast between inward and outward joy. Um, the first, welling up steadily from God through every discouragement. The second, a rare product of a pleasant set of circumstances. So Israel was looking through joy from, all, from a completely outward perspective, which is totally circumstantial. Circumstances can, can change, and only when that rare instance, when all the circumstances align, do we have that moment of what we would call joy. It's not real joy, and that's why Israel um, is, doesn't have joy when those circumstances change. But David uh, says that no matter the abundance of their grain and alcohol and no matter the lack, or the abundance of their grain and wine and no matter the lack of grain and wine in my life, I, I have more joy in you than possible without you. So to our, our idea of peace today, uh, a quick definition of what I will say joy is for today's purposes is the assurance of one's, or definition of peace, the assurance, uh, assurance of one's joy. Um, and so Israel has no assurance of their joy because it is dependent upon earthly things which are temporal and circumstantial. So it's when those things change, and we, all, we go through life with the knowledge that they will change, there's no assurance. I have it right now, maybe, but I have no guarantee to have it tomorrow. The assurance of one's joy, peace, this, of course, is impossible when we depend on grain or wine for joy. There could always be shortages or losses of those things due to all sorts of circumstances. Weather affects the crops. It can be stolen, lost, the general dull that follows every original high. Health will wane and death will happen. For us, we mostly buy our nutrients and desserts, of course, so we're not farmers like they were mostly. They might, some people might have done some trading, um, but the same holds true. Our financial resources can always change. And circumstances can always affect our ability to buy those things. But it's not limited to those things. The reality is the very best of earthly pursuits will let us down. And, we can always be, and they can always be affected by changes in circumstances. And we always know that changes in circumstances will happen. So this is the deeper source for those that are shaming David. They don't currently have what they need for their own joy and peace, and they're angry at David for the change of their, of their current circumstances. And so because they lack joy, their response was to act out, to demean, to shame, to be angry at David. Again, peace is always impossible when the object of our hope or one's ability to have the object of hope can change. So there is, if there is such a peace, as we see in verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It must come from outside of ourselves, outside of circumstantial nature to which we live in, and it must be true and unchanging. For us as Christians, we point to the biblical God, the triune God, the God who brings peace. Peace. 
Before we go further into that, uh, another need for peace is a proper expectation based upon truth. And I want to talk through some of those things. First, we should expect that uh, we will be tempted to put our hope in earthly temporal things and things dependent upon circumstances for our joy and therefore our peace. It's something that David did. It's why David uh, um, originally sinned when he failed to go out with his army into war and uh, the cascading effects that followed from there and refused to repent, tried to hide his repentance, tried to cover his sin and his shame uh, until he was confronted uh, and, and eventually repented. And it is why these people are acting out currently. We should expect that we will be tempted to put our hope in earthly temporal things, things dependent upon circumstances for our joy and therefore our peace. Why? Because those are our only options apart from God. Those are our only options apart from something outside of creation that is true and does not change. Everything within creation, everything within this current reality of earth changes. It's temporal. It's either God, ourselves, or the things within the rest of space that we can see. Those are our options. Only one of those things could we think wouldn't change. That would be God. That would be a creator, a designer, a sustainer. Again, one of our expectations. Something unchanging or outside of our temporal circumstances depend, uh, only something unchanging and outside of our temporal circumstances depend uh, current, or circumstances depending current, uh, our current existence can be the source of our peace. So all else will let us down when we look to it as a source of our hope. Not only will all else let us down, all else we can't trust won't change. We have no hope beyond the right now. The good news is that we can expect that those things that uh, are good, those things are good and only let us down when we expect from them what we cannot get from them. So again, we can expect we can trust that those things are good and only let us down when we expect from them what they cannot give us. So we should expect the good things God has blessed us with here in this universe as things that whet our appetite for him, to increase our longing for him and our knowledge of our need for him. C.S. Lewis uh, put it beautifully this way, he says, uh, and this brings me to the uh, other sense of glory. Glory as brightness, splendor, luminosity. We are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. As we are told uh, will be the case in Revelation 2, I think I will begin to see what it means. In only one way, of course, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you ask, do we want? Ah, but we want much more. 
something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and the mythologies know all about. We do not want merely to see beauty, though. God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. So we, we go through life and we, we are desperate to find what is missing in our life, what is lacking. And we experience these good things, these gifts from God to us. And they're just not enough in themselves. And so we need more of them. We need to be a one with them, them, them to be one with us so that we can have the fullness that we need. And so Lewis goes on to say, it's why we have these ideas, these false notions of mythology, people connected with water or land or air or clouds. We, uh, some of you, a handful of you maybe, many of you are too young, have heard of Captain Planet, a cartoon uh, back in the day where these, uh, there was this group of superheroes that uh, were connected with different aspects of nature and they were going around and saving the world and, and uh, they were one with these things and it brought salvation. Uh, it brought goodness into the world. And, and in the same way, uh, we're desperate for um, something more than what we currently have. And so we don't just see and taste and experience beauty and goodness in this world. We need something deeper from it. It's why poets can say things like the west winds will connect to the human soul. It won't. But it's why we say it. It's a hope. It's a n- based out of our need. But Lewis goes on to say, well, not yet anyways. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously... If we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, But all the leaves, so the New Testament, are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in, when human souls have become as perfect an involuntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience. Then they will put on its glory, or rather that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch." The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasure. And even thus filtered, these physical pleasures are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead of that stream of which these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole of man is to drink the joy of the fountain, or drink from the fountain of joy. As St. Augustine says, the rapture of the saved soul will overflow into the glorified body. Uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to read along, I'm going to read a couple long passages in a moment. You can turn to Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4.
put your hand or fold a page or do what you need to to mark off both of those. But uh, many of you uh, went to a supermarket this uh, weekend. Some of you might have gone to a wholesale market. And uh, while you were there, you were probably, you might have been walking around and there might have been a sample um, there for you to try. Might have been many samples depending upon where you were. And of course, they have those samples there not to say, okay, now you've had a sam- now you've eaten this, now you've tried this, save your money, go home. They have the samples there so that you will sample it and you will say, I would like more of this. I'm going to buy more. That's what God is doing with his good things to you here. He's giving you a sample of his goodness, of his glory, so that when you taste it, you can say, I need more of this. And you can find it in him. That's what Lewis is saying. And he's saying, someday, as uh, David said, God is my righteousness. So too is Lewis's righteousness. To the point that someday, his obedience will be the exact same obedience as the sands on the shore of Lake Erie. The rocks sitting there on the beach. The same as the leaves on that tree, the roots of that tree right outside this door. And with that, we will bask in the fullness of that overflowing river's joy. I'm going to read Romans 8 first. I'm not going to do a lot of breaking down of these two scriptures. I just want you to take it in. I'm going to read it Write them down. Go home. Read it again today. Read it again tomorrow. Read it again later in the week. Understand what God is doing in this world for you and for the people of this world. Romans eight seventeen to 25. Again, write it down if you like. Romans eight seventeen to 25. Now, if we are children then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also, uh, may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage of decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what, has he, has already, what he already has? But if we hope for what we, ha- we do not have, we wait for it patiently. And so David had tasted God's goodness in this world. He had tasted it through the good things of this world. 
Um, he had tasted it in ways that led him to fall because he made those good things his place of hope and it led him astray. But he reassessed his expectations. He realigned his heart in the light of God's truth or God realigned his heart in the light of God's truth. And those good things became pointers to the glory of God. To David. He also remembered God's good things that he had done for him in tangible ways here in this world. And he recognized that even though he was undeserving, he was unrighteous in his own part, God made him right in in God's eyes. And therefore, the glimmers of the good things that he experienced here will one day be experienced by him in ways to which he can't even imagine fully here. And so even in light of all the circumstances that was going on in his life right now, all the turmoil that we talked about a few weeks back, the chaos in his community, the chaos in his family, the death in his community, the death in his family, the people out to to get him, to kill him, to shame him, David had peace because he knew what God was doing. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18. Again, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be may also, or so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believed and so we also spoke, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer outer selves are wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The good things, but unfulfilling things in themselves of this world are not God's way of rubbing our face in our shameful and miserable disobedience. They are his way of allowing us to sample his beauty, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his love, his salvation. They are, in fact, part of the world's hope of finding the peace we all long for. 
Aristotle says that happiness is the settling of the soul into its most appropriate spot. In that regard, peace would be the knowledge that our souls are and will be forever in its appropriate place. So for us, that's in the hands of the God who has written his goodness and love for us all over this world. See, our flesh longs for these good things to meet its weakness, to meet its desire, its need, because we're separated from God. And the devil comes along and he tells us, in yourself, you're not good enough. You need more. In yourself, you're not right because of the ways you sought to get more. Same thing he said to Eve and Adam in the garden. You're not enough as you are. You need more. And God says to us, I am enough for you. And we've rejected that. But that same God desires to hold us in his hands. And he's written his love for us through all of creation. He's drawing us to himself through those things, and he has made a way to himself through his great sacrifice, the son stepping into his creation, going through all the changes of circumstances that have caused us deep pain as he lived in this world as a man, but being full of of joy uh, that he wants to give us, even in the pain of those changing circumstances, he was never disobedient to his father. even to the point of death on the cross. His separation from the members, the other members of the Trinity and in his raising back to life and the reunion with the Father and the Spirit, we have hope that in his death, in his separation, we don't have to know the separation that we've lived in previous to this or we struggle to accept where we no longer live in after we have known him as our Savior. That doesn't have to be our reality. And in his raising and reunion with the other members of the Trinity, that we are raised with him in his righteousness as it becomes ours. And that God looks at us and says, you are good. I see the righteousness of the Son. I see his blood has covered you. And I am united with you. And when I am united with you for eternity, you are, not, you, you are united with the God who writ, wrote his love for you all over this world, who died for you, who raised for you, who has brought you with me into myself for eternity. Because it was never about you needing to do something. It was about me doing it for you. And so when David prays, In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone. O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's interesting that it says both lie down and sleep. Uh, that both can, can be translated as together or uh, simultaneously. Such a peace that when David said he was ready to go to sleep, he fell asleep. Usually when we lay down and go to sleep and we fall asleep is because we've just gone through an extremely exhausting, anxious, worrying experience. And we're worn out. 
But David's peace was much different than that. David's was a peace of no worry that allowed him to rest. As he confronted uh, and came to uh, his God in prayer, the God who brings peace, he was given that blessing of rest. Uh, And he says, For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This, again, is not a promise that his circumstances won't change. It's a promise, as uh, I think uh, can be well translated as he dwells unafraid. He is secure in the hands of his God, and nothing that changes can change that reality. And his peace is secure. He is unafraid that his joy will change. David's peace is not circumstantial. It's secure for eternity in the hands of his God. So he has peace and he rests. Also, the changes in his life circumstances do not lead him to be angry. They lead him to God. David's going through a lot right now. And in both of these chapters, where does he end up? in conversation with God, ending in peace, where he sleeps with peace. He rests. When we are dependent uh, on circumstances, circumstantial things for our hope, there's always going to be somebody to which we can blame for our misfortune, to which we can blame for our lack of peace and joy. And we're going to do it. It's naturally going to happen. Sometimes that might be ourselves. Sometimes it's going to be other people. But we're always going to be angry, upset, annoyed at somebody for our lack of joy and peace. Until we recognize that we can't find our hope in those things. And we come to God and we find his peace, his rest. And then we can begin to love them and serve them as David's trying to do, to pray for them as David is doing. We can take their pain and bring it on as our own, carry their burden as Christ carried ours. Because our peace is secure in him. And we become a church that loves each other, serves each other, longs to carry each other's burdens, and we do so with great love and great affinity. So a couple of of application points. One, you have to be with God. In prayer, you have to know what he's done for you. You have to know his good things. You have to know he is good. That means like David, you have to know what God has done. And for us, that is scripture. For us, that is remembering our testimony. For us, that is remembering the testimony of those around us. For us, that is together as a church, praising God for what he has done and who he is and how that has helped us to find peace in our life. And it means when we are experiencing anger or annoyance, we're impatient with somebody, we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, what's going on in my heart? What idol do I have? Where am I missing God in my life that has caused me unrest 
and therefore annoyance with somebody else. We have to properly know our expectations. Remember them. What does Scripture tell us? What do my godly friends tell us? Who am I going to when I'm struggling with what's going on in my life? Who am I talking to? You're going to go to sleep seven nights in a row. Ask yourself for the next seven nights when you're going to sleep, is there peace? What am I worried about? What am I thinking about? What am I contemplating? What am I longing for? What am I looking forward to? If the answer is other than God or his ministry that he's called you to, what's going on in your heart? What's going on uh, in your, uh, your life as far as where your priorities lie, what you're hoping in, what you're longing for? Let's pray. Father, you are great and glorious and deserving of all praise. Your love is written all over this world for us. And in our rejection, uh, we uh, have decided that uh, your gifts were greater than you. And we turn to them as our hope instead of you. And we cast ourselves into chaos and all sorts of, of uh, pain, lack of peace, lack of joy. But your love didn't stop at creation. It didn't stop in your design uh, uh, for this earth uh, before the fall. It continued uh, with a, a desire to save the fallen. A design that in spite of uh, your knowledge that we will reject you. You allow the Son to be rejected. A knowledge in spite of uh, our uh, lack of love, our enmity, our hatred of your good uh, ways because of our longing for your good things that you'll give up your good son. You'll give up that relationship for a time so that we can be your good sons and daughters. We can be heirs to your family, your kingdom. What a glorious and great love that is ever before us. Help us as we walk through our lives these coming days, as we contact your creation in different ways, whether it's pure nature, the formation of your nature into different things, through your people, as we taste and smell and see and hear different ways to which your beauty is lovingly displayed for us to expect that those things in themselves cannot meet what we need, but are your way of saying to us, I love you, come to the true source of the river that overflows with joy. And as we do so, grow us in your joy and therefore your peace. Grow us in your truth, our steadfastness in you. Grow us in humility. Make us less 
anxious, worrying, angry, annoyed, impatient people and make us more merciful and graceful and loving reconcilers. In your name we pray, amen.